0: Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, hermit farmer, curmudgeon skeptic, and Kelly Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. St. Grammas Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee. Been gay and or disappointment. You know what I'm talking about. Sad people walking in those sad, dimly lit rooms. Please, sir, can I have more? RDI is also a podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting people. And I have some other podcasts I do with some podcast partners. And in general, we try and entertain you and hopefully, perhaps, educate you as well. And if you enjoy this podcast, hook a brother up. I know I ask every week, but it's important. I think I ask every day. Rate and review on iTunes, man. It's one of those small things. You just finished up reading the, the one thing. This one of those small things you can do, which would be huge for me. Rate and review on iTunes and, of course, share the podcast across all social media. Shit ton of you guys are. See it all the time. Thank you. See a ton of you. Really appreciate it. I'm not going to beat it to that this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess or go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. Legal disclaimer, because this world's filled with a bunch of fucking non-accountability motherfuckers in no way, shape or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal under or investment advice. Or the book I'm reading. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions that uh, you grow the fuck up. All right? Contact a lawyer. Hire some sort of other licensed professionals. And in general, be an adult who isn't a victim. All right? And don't uh, don't sue me. All right. Time for the Running H.R. Investors Show Quote of the Week where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And I would like to point out that, yes, we are in the best market and the last, what, 10 years at least in metro detroit it might be longer than where you're at but um like noah right i don't believe any of that shit but like noah you build the ark before the rain you know it's a parable right we can take it as a parable you don't start building when there's rain you know when the floods already there you already fucked. so we're preparing now right so what we're doing we are starting on the shift the shift which is a book written by gary keller And it's how top real estate agents tackle tough times. But I think this is going to apply. Um, A lot of this stuff is going to apply to investors too because a lot of this stuff, legion is legion, customer service is customer service, all of that. And this book is about the shift. In fact, let me read to you um, the back. Shifts happen, market shifts, and you can too. Sometimes you'll shift in response to a falling market. Other times, you'll shift to take business to the next level. Both can transform your business and your life. You can change your thinking, your focus, your actions, and ultimately your results to get back in the game and ahead of the competition. The tactics to jumpstart your business in tough times will power it forward in good ones. No matter the market, shift. So that's what we're going to be reading today. And mostly because um, I'm having a good time reading these. They're helping me out. And I think if they're going to help me out, They are going to help you out as well. So without further ado, let's get into it. So right now I'm starting on the forward. I think it's on page uh, forward 13. It's the one in Roman numerals, two X's followed by three I's forward. You cannot control what happens to you, but you can control your attitude toward What happens to you, and in that you'll be mastering change rather than allowing it to master you. Brian Tracy, no challenge, no success. I think about success a lot. I think about it in regards to my life, but I think about it in regards to your life too. I think about what it means and what it doesn't mean. I think about achieving it and not achieving it. I ponder the possibilities, I evaluate the odds, I imagine the outcomes. I consider the consequences and I visualize the victories. Clearly, I think success matters enough to, well, think about it. In our business, we actually refer to success quite often. And I sometimes wonder if we're completely in touch with what we're even talking about. We repeatedly hear someone say that success is not easy and quickly nod our heads in agreement, but I must say that I'm not so sure that it's hard either. I actually view it in a more practical and straightforward way that sidesteps the very concepts of hard or easy. I think of success simply as the end result of a challenge accepted and achieved. In fact, I am convinced that's why challenge, achievement, and success are linked together. Success is achieved when we meet a challenge we set out for ourselves. No challenge, no achievement, no success. I'm going to highlight that. Just like the last time. Make sure when you're reading, read along. Buy the book. I put the link in the in the show notes if you don't already have it. Read along. Um, I know uh, Chris Martin gave me some good feedback. Thank you, Chris. Um, he was doing the same thing, and it helps. And I started doing it too. Um, Joe Dealey is the one who told me about it. I can't remember who told him, but buy the book on tape. Like, go to Audible. This is like the cheap version of Audible with the angry Jeremy Burgess doing shit in the background. But then while you're reading it, listen to it and read it at the same time. Anyway highlight the parts that you think are important too, because that's why we're doing this. Back to the book. Without a doubt, achieving success takes more than just wanting it or visualizing it. Success takes action, and sometimes those actions will be hard, and sometimes they'll be easy. I always, I know success takes action, but I never miss an opportunity to remind myself. Because I don't know about you. Uh, I don't need excuses in my life. Back to the book, keep challenging yourself long enough and you'll experience both. Everyone who is successful has this in common. They accept the challenge, take action, and sometimes encounter circumstances that are tough and other times that aren't so tough. And this is where the possible and the probable part. In the real estate business, success is possible for all, but only probable for those who take action. Success, our successful achievement-oriented action means Getting up and flat out running toward what you want. Some people take action because they're running toward something, while others take action because they're running from something. Both can serve as effective catalysts, but either way, you're running. And the running is what matters. The only difference is merely in the motivation. A lot of people say there are many ways to be successful, and yet I think what they really mean is that there are often a lot of reasons why people are successful. From all my research, I'm continually reminded that while the reasons for one success may vary, the most successful people tend to be doing the same things. The motivations differ, but the means don't. Gather together a great number of successful real estate agents and ask them how they do what they do, and you'll hear very similar strategies and tactics. Why? Because successful people run in the same direction with similar approaches. Their reasons are varied and personal, but their actions are comparable and their language incredibly alike. They are doing and saying the same basic things. And those who aren't succeeding, they're not. You could have picked this book up for a lot of reasons, but regardless of your reasons, hopefully the outcome you seek is to become the best you can professionally, be in the real estate business by running with the best and doing what the best do. If that's true, this book is written for you. Living to the Right of Middle During his junior year in high school, my son John and I were having a father and son one-on-one about achievement. I had asked him to do something, and he quickly informed me that he didn't want to do it. When I asked him why, he simply replied, I just don't want to. Of course, my initial reaction was say I didn't ask if you wanted to, but then I got mentally parental and said, let me share something with you. John, a lot of people make decisions about what they will or won't do based on whether they want or don't want to do it. But I'm not sure if they fully understand the corner they may be painting themselves into with this approach. Their response has everything to do with success and achievement, but probably not in the way they think. I drew a line on a sheet of paper and continued. I want you to think of the far right of this line as complete success and the far left as complete failure. It's my personal belief that all of us live our lives somewhere in between these two points. Now, I want you to know that I've never met anyone who is a complete success or, for that matter, anyone who is a complete failure. In fact, John, I believe most people simply live their lives in the middle, They're average. What I think happens is that as we go about our lives, most of us miscalculate what it takes to succeed at a high level, and as a result, we end up getting unceremoniously caught at the midpoint of achievement, not going any further and not really knowing why we're not. No matter the motivation for more, no matter the desire of our dreams, the results tend to hover right around the middle of the line. Now, why do you suppose people get stuck there? I paused to let him absorb all of this, and then I very quietly answered my own question. They get there by making decisions based upon whether or not they want to do something rather than whether or not they should do something. You see, John, the road to average is paved with I don't want tos. I'm highlighting that. I say it all the time. It's great for uh, personal disputes too. (laughs) Just kidding. I said, in order to get to the middle of life at anything, all you have to do is what you like to do. But if you want to live on the right side of average at anything that really matters to you, you must move past doing what you want to do and do some things you don't want to do. And the more you can conquer this and do what you need to do but don't like to do, the farther to the right and middle you get to live. In other words, the measure of your success in life is in direct proportion to what you're willing to do when you don't want to do it. Now, I'm not sure it's fair to expect a 17-year-old to absorb this all at once, but I'm certain John got the essence of what I was saying. Average is doing only what you want to do. Success is doing what you must. Hmm. Success is doing what you must. Frankly, I don't know of any job where anyone loves 100% of all it entails. There's no goal worth having that doesn't require you doing some undesirable task to attain it. Everything you desire will come with some undesirables, like scum with dislikes, wants come with unwanteds. That just doesn't seem to be there. Just doesn't seem to be any desired outcome you can resist where you also can't resist doing all the tasks and functions required to achieve it. It's why most people miss out on the seemingly irresistible in life. Their effort stops in the middle, and so does their success. The fly guide loves to fish, but doesn't love hauling the boat in and out of the water. The musician loves to perform, but doesn't love dragging equipment around from show to show. My point to my son, and my point to you, is that there will always be things we don't like to do on the way to achieving what we want to achieve. You have to drag the amp on stage before you can play. You have to drag the boat in the water before you can fish. You have to lead generate to get appointments before you can actually work with a buyer or seller. You got to do what you got to do to get what you want when you want it. The the formula for success doesn't get any clearer than that. That does sound like some Midwest uh, philosophy, but I'm going to highlight it anyway. I like the way it sounds the era of extra effort. After spending more than a year traveling across the United States and Canada, teaching shift and interacting with top agents who have read and implemented its tactics. I'm more convinced than ever that this is the inescapable truth. We're in an era of extra effort. When a shift occurs, people lose jobs. It's that devastatingly straightforward. You read the headlines or listen to the news and the overriding concern of almost everyone is, will I lose my job? I'll say almost everyone. Cause there's one group that isn't concerned. You guessed it. It's the people living to the right of the middle. A shift becomes the era of opportunity for those who are willing to do what others won't. A shift becomes an opportunity. I like the way he's thinking about it, right? Cause a lot of this is just how you frame this shit in your head. It's not like you have any control of the economy, right? There's no escaping this certainty. There is only dealing with it in a shift. The effort that got you where you are, isn't going to keep you there. If you just came from the era of average effort, then most likely you'll notice that getting by effort returned getting by results. Average effort meant you got to keep your job. In the era of extra effort, average effort could very well cost you your job. Look at it this way. In the era of average effort, it was easier to attain an acceptable level of success. You could do little and still get enough and maybe even get a lot. A market shift changes the achievement formula by raising the bar of required effort and lowering the results for average effort. All of a sudden, what you did in the past no longer delivers an acceptable level of success. To bring this point home, in the fall of 2008 and one of the toughest hit markets in the country, Tallahassee, Florida, top agent and successful businessman Gene Rivers worked with a group of agents who tracked their efforts and results over an eight-week period. They were participating in a class called Success Series, where each week the students set out to make a certain number of contacts and record their outcomes. Here's what they found out. On average, for every 34 contacts an agent made with prospective buyers and sellers, they netted one closed transaction. Plainly put, that's a 34 to 1 contact to close ratio. What makes that number notable is that past studies have shown an average contact to close ratio of around 24 to one at first blush, 10 additional contacts per transaction may not feel like a lot more, but you must realize this means you'd have to increase your efforts by a very challenging 42% just to get the same results. If you keep giving the same past market 24, one effort, your business will likely drop off by a hard hitting 30% or more. And I can say, by the way, this is not in a book that in the last year and a half, it's so weird they use these numbers because they're fucking spot on, dude. So I track all my shit, right? It literally – that wasn't 24 to 1. It used to take me 25 um, – New, I call them new prospect contacts – to book enough appointments to get one deal close for sure, right? And in the last year and a half, that's, cre- that's crept up to 35. So it's interesting that his numbers are 34 and 24 and mine were 25 and 35. That's some weird, creepy shit. Just goes to show you, damn, he's coming from some place. And I, I tested it in my life, too. I also know that my closing rate is 3.7%. Um, sort of all the leads that come in, 3.75% uh, actually get closed. Back to the book. And Gene's experience wasn't unique. That's the part, right? Not unique. Top agents across the continent have all discovered this adjusted reality of business life. You must jump to higher gear to hit any goal you set during a shifted year. Courtney Yates of Murfreesboro, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, who has always tracked the numbers that drive her business, shared with me that during this market for every 43 showings, I'd get a contract. It used to be 10. Then it was 17. Then it was 43 for Courtney extra effort translated into 33 additional showings for every sale, a 330% increase in effort from one market to the shifted one, Florida agent, Pilar Moscoso discovered she needed to make an additional 10 contacts every day just to stay on track. She reported that for her connecting with 10 people required an average of 25 additional calls each day all across the United States and Canada adds up to the same blueprint for achievement. That's why top productivity coaches, Diana Koskov, sorry if I screwed that up. And Tony DiCello said when the market reinvents itself, you must reinvent yourself. You simply need to pick the results you want and match the effort those results require. It will take extra effort, whoever you are and wherever you may be. One condition of consistent success that can trip us all up is understanding that what works for one market situation rarely works as well for another. What isn't obvious is that while bad habits can still lead to good results in a good market, when the market slows, those same bad habits can now lead to some awfully bad results. Altered economics called for adjusted actions. You must drop the bad habits of a good market and adopt the good habits of a bad market. Alan Dome of Philadelphia, one of the top real estate professionals in the world, gets this better than most. A lot of agents will spend less than an hour marketing an open house and then go sit in an empty house for up to four hours on Sunday. Alan just flips this approach around by sending up to four hours of marketing an open house And then when he holds it open, it's packed, and it can last less than an hour. He says that it's more than just extra effort. It's about putting the extra effort where it belongs. And he's right. It's both. It's extra effort on the things that matter most. Considering I've been doing that, I need to flip that shit. I'm going to highlight that. This may not apply to you. Make sure to highlight the parts that apply to you so we can come back and review them later. Right? The one thing. So what matters most, if we step back and look at our business, we can see that there are actually six uh, competencies at the core of what we do as real estate professionals. First, we lead generate, capture, and convert leads to appointments. Second, we present to potential buyers and sellers and get representation agreements signed. Third, we show our buyers and market our sellers. Fourth, we write and negotiate purchase contracts. Fifth, we coordinate our results, uh, our resulting sales to closing. And six, we manage all the money that flows through our business. We actually discuss all six on page 38 as they relate to leverage and delegation, but I'd also like to give you a slightly different perspective. These six core competencies are really an outline for our basic sales job description, the areas that must be done from beginning to end for any real estate transaction. And although they're all important and none can be left undone, they're very different in two key ways, which one matters most and which one can and can't be successfully delegated. Areas 2 through 6 can be effectively delegated with a high degree of success and at a predictable cost. We know this because top agents do it all the time with tremendous results. Plus, we also know what we have to pay for people to do 2 through 6 for us for it has been well documented. Presenting, showing, writing, negotiating, coordinating closings, and managing money are all activities that, to a certain degree, can be delegated successfully. However, it is extremely difficult to effectively delegate number one lead generation, and conversion to an appointment. Why? The skill level it takes to generate a lead, capture the appropriate information, and then convert that lead to an appointment is a distinct skill set that takes extensive practice over time to develop to a high level. And it's where the money is. We've observed that when top agents delegate lead generation and appointment setting, their conversion rate usually falls from upward of 80% to much less than 10%. Man, that's pretty bad. I'm highlighting that part. When there are lots of leads to burn through, this isn't a big as big a problem when there as when there are few to be found. In a shift where every single lead is essential to hitting your minimum goals, lead generation can't be delegated. It's a dirty job, and someone has to do it. And the and the someone who has to do it is you. So when you leave the house each morning and say, honey, I'm going to work, here is the all-important question for you. Are you going to do number one or something else? It's a great question and gets to the very heart of achievement and success in our business. How you answer will go a long way toward determining your ultimate success in any market. Work versus play. I once asked Gary Peterson, the legendary drummer of the Guess Who and co-author of the mammoth classic rock hit American Woman, whether he was working or playing whenever he performed. His answer was insightful. He was playing. I then asked him, when do you work? And he said, when I practice, I'm working. When I perform, I'm playing. And how hard I work when I'm practicing not only determines how often I play, but also my pay. I have since asked many other successful musicians, and they have all given me essentially the same response. It reminds me that success always leaves clues, and this is a gigantic one that no one can afford to ignore. A lot of real estate agents want to go straight to playing without ever putting in the work and practice beforehand. And to top that, they then have the expectation that they'll also earn a great deal. The poorest performing agents want to get paid a lot to play a lot before they earn the right by working a lot. It's faulty thinking that when played out never pays out. I bet you guys recognize a lot of that in the agents you worked with, right? <laughs> I'm highlighting that for me as a reminder not to be a fucking loser when I'm working with these people. Make sure I give them some value. Don't expect to get paid till I deliver and do an excellent job. Back to the book. While on a fly fishing trip, John J. Tony and I wandered into a vacant retail space where we discovered celebrated artist, Pat Matthews, painting one of his famous Aspen scenes without missing a stroke. He began to tell us about the canvas he was working on about life. And at one point I asked him how he became so good at what he does that he can carry on a conversation with four total strangers while creating incredible art. Pat gave us a one word answer practice. He'd always imagined that if he were a pool player and practiced four to five hours a day for six and seven years, he'd become a really good, uh, good pool player. He told us that he took that concept and just applied it to painting while adding two additional disciplines. First, that he will finish at least one painting every day, and second, that he will strive to touch, to only touch the canvas with single strokes and no touch-ups, to help develop his talent and further this discipline. Pat said that sometimes he even set a timer to finish a painting within a certain amount of time, often two hours. Amazing. To be honest, some of his work requires weeks and even months of his attention. But for me, his mastery is apparent and his ability to paint a canvas in two hours that looks as if it took two years. His work and focus on a few core disciplines have allowed him to rise up and become a truly extraordinary and renowned artist who today commands tremendous artistic respect, critical acclaim, and financial appreciation. For incredible artists like Gary Peterson and Pat Matthews, the world is thrilled to pay them to play because they work so hard each and every day. A model business. Ever since shift was published, I get repeatedly asked if the four models and the millionaire real estate agents still apply. The answer is yes. The only change is in the numbers you have to plug in. The 12 tactics presented in the shift sit on top of the four models as the actions you take to implement them. Nothing's changed. Everything is still fundamentally the same. The tactics of shift are an extension of the millionaire real estate agent. The millionaire real estate agent focuses you on models. Shift focuses you on tactics. So this book's going to be about tactics, man. We're digging in. No matter the market, you must still have an economic model to tell you the numbers you have to hit to reach your financial goals. The chain of events between you and your income is still contacts to appointments, to sign agreements, to accepted contracts, to closings. Knowing your numbers is what informs your specific actions and only purposeful action rewards you with the production you desire. And there's a little chart here where they have a picture which it says economic models number one. Then there's an arrow to number two, which is lead generation model which leads you to number three, which is a budget model, which leads you to number four, which is an organizational model, which dumps you back into number one, which is the economic model. Informed by your economic model, you now know the number of leads you must generate from your lead generation uh, model. Armed with this objective, your singular assignment becomes putting in four or more time-blocked hours a day focusing on achieving it. And your activities will have to be prospecting-based and marketing-enhanced. At the time of our early research of the millionaire real estate agent, due to the market, this was flipped. Now, we're all quite certain of the order, never to retreat from it. And to have a business worth owning over time, once a contact is made, the name is fed into your database for you to systematically touch. Once you start spending money, you begin to realize the importance of having a basic budget model that establishes the expenses you can afford. Without a financial plan, it's easy for your overhead to put you underwater. Although every agent's personal experience is unique, the 30-30-40 formula, 30% cost of sale, 30% operating expenses, and 40% profit is still attainable. But in a shift, it takes extraordinary effort to accomplish it. Finally, when you've done all you can do by yourself, you hire help by implementing the organizational model. The progression never changes. It's still hire administrative assistant first, buyer assistance second, and listing assistance last. The secret of successful hiring is to let your support needs grow based on one result. Having too many leads to handle. Always, I'm going to highlight that. Make sure you guys are highlighting the shit that's important to you too, and gals. Make sure you folks. Sorry, I'm still a little sick. Back to the book, always allow someone to prove themselves as an assistant before they're awarded the top position for their area. So you hire an executive assistant who can become an assistant executive. You hire a showing assistant who can become a buyer specialist. You hire a listing assistant who can become a listing specialist. Never violate the basic concept of making good hires prove they're great and earn the right to move up the ladder to the key leadership role for that area. Drive through to breakthrough. If you want to run through a wall, don't judge your effort based on the wall. Let the wall judge your effort and deal with it. The wall isn't your issue. Your effort is. If you want to break through during a shift, you're going to have to drive right through your target. Professional golf instructors will tell you to imagine a point just in front of the ball when you are preparing to swing. The idea is to drive your stroke through the target, not to the target. Golfers who don't get this never achieve their optimal success. It's the same in karate. The sensei teaches to imagine a point at the back of the opponent's head as a target. When you aim for the nose, your strike falls at the end of your punch. But when you plow beyond the point of contact and put your whack at the center of your wallop, you're at your maximum power. Again, your power comes from driving through a target. It's a graphic illustration, but a potent one. When you aim past obstacles, they may slow you down, but you still have breakthroughs. Laser, I like that. When you aim past... Laser-like focus and relentless effort, it's an incredible formula for achievement. When this is your blueprint for action, the market informs your present, but doesn't determine your future. Should you wake up one day and feel like you're in a crisis, just remember that crisis stands for circumstances requiring an immediate shift in strategy. So... Should you decide to shift, the 12 tactics in this book will get you up and running and successfully guide you to your goals onward. Signed by Gary Keller, December 10, 2009. And then there's like, and finally, I want to acknowledge that making changes in your life is never an easy task. The key, however, is not to get caught up in the distance you have to go to get where you want to be, nor should you despair over the amount of control you have over your circumstances. Progress is made in the small intentional steps And chances are you have more power than you think. By focusing on little steps, you can take every day. The progress you make will motivate you to continue your journey and eventually you can go wherever you want to go. The important thing is simply to begin. All right. Introduction. The worst that happens to you can be the best thing for you if you, don't let, if you don't let it get the best of you. Unknown. The real estate market has shifted drastically and dramatically. Sales volume and the number of transactions have dropped significantly. Inventory has reached an all-time high. Buyers have never been more reluctant. Fear is rapid, anxiety is high, and people are getting out of the business left and right. Sound familiar? Sure it does. The year was 1979, and that's what was happening all around me. I was 22 years old, new to the industry, and new to Austin. I basically knew nothing and no one, and still I sold six houses my first month in the business, five of which closed. Then the market collapsed. Interest rates soared to over 18%. The marketplace fell into chaos, and I didn't close the sale for five straight months. By Christmas, I was six months into my real estate career and broke. My dad offered to help. Based on my growing database and the business side of my pipeline, he loaned me $500 to keep me going. The very next day, my dad's faith in me was validated when I wrote a contract on a home for Jack and Dorothy Saul. Ultimately, my hard work paid off and I ended my first 12 months hitting all my financial goals. Eight years later, fast forward to 1987 and it happened again. This time the government changed tax laws, which had a disastrous effect. The market shifted seemingly overnight. The listing inventory went through the roof. Sales transactions fell to the floor. And our local real estate board went from over 5,000 members to below 2,000. Panic and confusion reigned. It felt like everybody was running helter-skelter, looking for shelter, but finding no place to hide. There was no escaping the shift. By this time in my career, I started my own company and we had become the 10th largest in the market. My competitors were going bankrupt all around me and the number of agents in my office abruptly dropped from more, to 70, from more than 70 to below 40. To make matters worse, in the midst of getting my feedback under, under me and reestablishing my profit margin, a new competitor entered the picture. Five of my top 10 associates and my entire administrative staff walked out the door. My business was being assaulted from all sides. As bad as my first market shift experience was as an agent, it was even more devastating as an owner. In the end, I found my way through this shift just as I had before. And once again, I not only survived, I thrived and ultimately emerged stronger, more capable than ever. Less than two years after the shift, our company became number one in the market, a position never to be relinquished. Are you facing a shift? If you are, you shouldn't be surprised. History repeats itself. This is not the first time real estate professionals have been in this position. What's happening to you today has happened before and is destined to happen again. Real estate market shift. There always have they always have and they always will. And the business goes on as bleak as things can look during shifts. When I look back, and I believe they've served. Uh, when I look back, I believe they have. They've served as a genesis for everything I've become. And the catalyst for all that I've achieved. In fact, I've come to see them as opportunities. So can you. And I feel the same way. I got started at the very end of 2005. Not as an agent, but as a real estate investor. And I just thought I was the bee's knees, man. I was the shit. Which if you know of 2005, you could do no wrong. 2006, you can also do no wrong. And really it was like um, towards the end of 2006 and beginning of 2007, we um, started to notice the shift in the market. Which we ignored, and a bunch of other stupid stuff. But anyway, the point is, um, it was the greatest opportunity in my life. I still haven't had a better year than two thousand eight and two thousand nine, when nobody else was in business. So, when the blood's in the streets, that's when you want to uh, when you want to strike. So, prepare your trip. That's why we're doing this now, right before the storm. We want to be prepared to seize the opportunity. I'm just going to highlight this part business goes on. All right, you guys ready? Shifts happen. Real estate is a cyclical business. What goes up must come down and what is down won't stay there. Shifts are never unexpected, but rarely predictable. You know, one is coming. You just don't know when they are in fact, inevitable shifts happen, but we forget. Each time a shift occurs, we act surprised as if it had happened, never happened before. Once the shift is over, we act as if it will never happen again. It's like we all have amnesia. And that's odd since we deal with something similar every year. It's called seasonality, the seasonal cycle of sales that repeats each and every year. From month to month, there is an ebb and flow to the real estate business. Within each year, there is a time to make money and a time to save money. It is so natural, most simply take it in stride. There's a natural buildup of listing inventory from January through April April, and an offsetting decline in inventory from May through October. With an uptick in sales at the end of the year, the seasonal cycle of sales causes a correspondingly seasonal cycle of income. For real estate agents, these graphs are a heads up and give meaning to the phrase, make hay while the sun shines. The fact is, every year, real estate agents have to deal with the seasonal sales cycle and its impact on their cash flow. Well, seasonal cycles occur within a single year. Economic shifts happen over several years. Seasonal market cycles are month to month and economic market shifts are year to year. Just as the seasonal cycles dictate a rise and fall to your income over a period of months, the larger economic shifts create a rise and fall to your income over a period of years. Seasonal cycles feel predictable, short-term, and manageable. Economic shifts feel unpredictable, indefinite and overwhelming one feels like business as usual and the other feels well downright scary the real estate industry has learned to live with regular seasonal cycles but is always challenged by regular economic shifts the anatomy of a shift shifts are easy to understand they occur whenever supply and demand move out of balance when seller supply exceeds buyer demand, it's a buyer's market. When buyer demand exceeds seller's supply, it's a seller's market. A shift occurs when the market moves from one to the other. Think of it this way. It was over time if over time more listings are selling, you're moving toward a seller's market. If over time fewer listings are selling, you're moving towards a buyer's market. The three types of real estate markets. Number one, buyer's market. More than seven months of inventory. Balanced market, five to seven months of inventory. Seller's market, less than five months of inventory. There you go. Balanced market bar- markets occur during the transition between markets and rarely last for long. Why does a shift to a buyer's market create pain? Two reasons. First, it leads to fewer sales and less available sales income in your market. Second, it tends to be abrupt and precipitous. The misleading aspect of an economic shift is that it seems relatively natural and gradual when looked at nationally. When experienced locally, it is usually dramatic and fast. I can tell you that, too. In 2007, literally in June, a house in East Detroit, I know because I got caught with a couple of flips over there, was worth 110 to 120. And uh, by the end of July, it was worth about 20 grand. I shit you not. It was that fast. Back to the book. The national perspective rarely, if ever, matches the local experience. The hard truth is local market shifts are seldom slow and local landings are almost never soft. It's a lot like a pendulum or a golf swing. Beginning relatively slowly but accelerating very quickly through the middle, some local shifts can actually take your breath away. Several factors can cause an economic shift. Currency exchange rates and political climate are the primary global factors. On a national level, it's interest rates and inflation. Population, jobs, and household income take center stage at the city level. And at most local level, it's neighborhood dynamics and housing prices. All of this simply boils down to buyer demand, which is driven by affordability and perception. How many buyers can afford to buy and how many think it's a good time to buy. So are shifts bad? Well, it depends. For the real estate industry in a particular market, it certainly can be. The available income for everyone in that market has dropped. For any single individual in their local market, it doesn't have to be. There's still enough available income for them to achieve their goals. The challenge for individual agents, fear and how they respond to it. When market shifts occur, fear runs rampant. Although not everyone responds in the same way. I remember that, guys. I remember that in January of 2008, got a bunch of snow. I remember looking at hundreds of houses in Detroit, hundreds, and in the suburbs, where you go look at houses It snow on a Sunday, and it wouldn't snow again for four or five days, and you're the only set of footprints heading up to the house out of hundreds of houses. Literally, nobody else went to look at the house. People are funny, man. Back to the book. Some individuals, though they do feel the fear, also know they have an equal opportunity. Unequal reward business. It's really the 80-20 rule at work. 20% of the people who do 80% of the business in any entrepreneurial endeavor, those who understand this know that they must be better than average to earn the better than average rewards. If individuals understand a shift or have actually experienced one, they know they have to push past the fear and face two. Tasks first to survive and then to thrive. They have to hang tough until the law of equilibrium reasserts itself. Then it's opportunity time. The law of equilibrium. The law of equilibrium is as old as the real estate industry itself. It is simple and straightforward. The law states that the available income in a market determines the number of agents in that market. As the number of transactions rise, so does the number of agents. Conversely, when the number of available transactions fall... So does a number of agents. People are attracted to the industry by the perceived income opportunities and driven out by the reality of the competition for it. Oh, I like that. It's just so easy. Yeah, try it. Since perception tends to trail behind reality, two lag periods show up in every economic shift, the down lag and the up lag. The down lag occurs because the number of agents doesn't decline until the number of transactions has already been dropping for some time. The low point of income opportunity then occurs when the most agents are chasing the least amount of income. The up lag works in reverse when the transactions increase. The high income opportunity point, uh, point across, occurs on the way up when the fused agents are chasing the most amount of income. Or investors too, right? This happened in 2008 and 2009. It wasn't until 2010 that people started to catch on and start buying again, dude. That was literally, I look back and I really think I took advantage of that as well as I could and I just didn't. I could have done so much more. I basically, me and a bunch of other people I had two years. We could just do whatever the fuck we wanted with very little competition. Versus now, man, it's like a shark tank out there, dude. Eat your babies and your wife and every other damn thing. So when there's blood in the streets, remember that. Back to the book. Since perception tends to trail behind reality, two lag periods show up in every economic shift. The down lag and the up lag. The down lag occurs because the number of agents doesn't decline until the number of transactions have already been dropping for some time. The low point of income opportunity then occurs when the most agents are chasing the least amount of income. The uplag works in reverse when the transactions increase. The high income opportunity point occurs on the way up with the fewest agents when the fewest agents are chasing the most amount of income. With relatively few barriers to entry, the real estate industry can become flooded with practitioners during a prolonged seller's market and upshift. Larger and larger numbers of agents are attracted to the industry, and this increases the competition for existing business. When the amount of business then declines, a downshift, the competition becomes untenable. There are more people, but less business and fewer deals. Fewer deals means less money, and less money means lower income for everyone, and eventually it means fewer people doing business. If you can ride out, survive this initial lag period as more and more people get out of the business, you can find yourself in a less competitive market. There is now more business relative to the number of people working to get it, this is the time to thrive. All right, now this book was written in 2008. I noticed this too. So in t- between 2007, so June 2007 and January 2008, it was a huge drop. And I think I did one deal during that time, just one. So and then just immediately start started killing deals once that turned around. So it's it's kind of eerie how accurate this book is. Speaking of which, back to the book. How long it takes to get from survive to thrive can vary greatly from time to time and from person to person. There is the market shift and it's lag time. And then there is your shift and your lag time. If you don't shift fast, your lag time will parallel the market and you may be at risk to thrive in the upshift. You must first survives the downshift, right? So off, not in the book, get your treasure ready, right? Start saving now. Keep yourself liquid to a certain extent. Back to the book. Let's be clear here. There is nothing that says that an agent cannot thrive before the market upshifts. In fact, we have known and worked with many agents who had their best years in a down market. This book is based on the lessons learned from those agents who have actually accomplished this. Here's the truth. Not everyone will, but anyone can. I like that. The resilience factor. Even though you know that history repeats itself, in order to profit from it, you have to remember it. You must first carry the lessons of the past into the present. The past has taught us that this too shall pass, and that success comes to the resilient. Here is a tangible way to look at it. If your career goes three steps forward and the market drives you four back, you're essentially below zero and out of the game. If it's three steps forward and three back, all you've done is survive. But... If you take three steps forward and the market only drives you two steps back, you're just absorbing the hit. You're still in the game and you are more than just surviving. Perspective. I'm highlighting this for perspective. Perspective for me is important sometimes. You know, I don't know about you guys, but, uh. When you think it's only happening to you and it's not happening to everybody else, it could be it could be more challenging. Back to the book. The key is to be resilient and on your toes. Take the hit, but don't get knocked out. This is a survival strategy. Adapt to the realities of the new, downshifted market quickly. Change what you need to change. Do what you need to do. Build a fortress around what you have. At the very least, this means maintaining your number of sales while the market declines. The net effect will actually be an increase in your market share. Um, When the natural lag plays out, you will be positioned to take advantage of the inevitable rebound. You can then ride the wave of increasing transactions and available commission income by simply holding the new level of market share you've gained. If you do, your number of sales will increase dramatically and you will thrive. In order to survive and then thrive, you'll need to shift gears. Can you put it in another gear? Most people fear a shift because they don't understand the law of equilibrium. They can't shift their thinking, so they don't shift their tactics. If you can shift gears, shifting both your thinking and your tactics, you'll accelerate ahead of the rest. Both at the same time, right? Like having multiple tools. Don't want to rely on just one. So how do you shift gears? It's actually a very straightforward and pragmatic process. Our research has identified the 12 tactics you must deploy. These issues aren't special, unique, or new. They're the basic components of any successful real estate career. And when business gets tight, they become the critical factors that determine the difference between success or failure. These tactics represent the gear shifts that respond to the market shifts. Are you ready? Are you willing? Let's get after it. Part 2. You shift. For those following along, this is page 21. And uh, 12 tactics for tough times. Number one, get real, get right, mindset and action. Number two, re margin your business, expense management. Number three, do more with less, leverage. Number four, find the motivated lead generation. One of my favorite things. Number five, get to the table, lead conversion. Also one of my favorite things. Number six, catch people in your web, internet lead conversion. Number seven, price ahead of the market, seller pricing strategies. Number eight, stand out from the competition, seller staging strategies. Number nine, create urgency, overcoming buyer reluctance. Expand the options, create a financing, master the market of the moment, short sales, foreclosures, and REO, bulletproof the transaction, issues, and solutions. Tactic number one, get real, get right, mindset, in action. Decide what your priorities are and how much time you'll spend. If you don't, someone else will. Harvey McKay. In The Traveler's Gift, Andy Andrews passes on the wisdom that our lives are fashioned by choice. First we make choices. Then our choices make us. I wholeheartedly agree. I'm going to highlight that. You are what you decide, right? Back to the book. We are what we decide we will be, and we do what we decide we will do. We become our choices. The 12 issues you face in a shifting market are really an opportunity, an opportunity to make the 12 most important choices that will directly impact your career and power you through any shift. Of these 12 choices, the first and most significant will be to get real about your situation and get right about what you're doing. When a shift occurs, confusion follows, not only in the marketplace, but also in the mind and body. What to think and what to do becomes fuzzy because what once worked is no longer working and you may not know why. Don't let yourself panic. Keep fear at bay. When a market shifts, there is only one thing to do. Shift with it. In truth, there are two shifts you must make, a mental shift and an action shift. The mental shift. I believe that your life will either be about your problems or or your opportunities. You either be running away from something or running towards something. It's your call. To survive a shift, you must first make the mental shift to run towards what you most want and avoid the temptation of running away from what you most fear. One approach lifts you up and the other drags you down. You must keep both eyes on your target and not the ever-moving market, right? Right? What are you guys highlighting? I'm just curious. Uh, remember that success is never about the chosen few, but always about the few who choose. You get to choose and your life builds from there. There are three types of people who emerge when a market shifts. First, those that fearfully predict the worst and an unnecessarily pessimistic. Second, those who hopefully wish for hopefully wish for the best believe they can't fail and are unrealistically positive. That used to be me. And third, those who respect the fact that they might fail, actively prepare for the worst, and strive for the best. That's what I'm attempting to be. I'm going to be doing a lot of highlighting this book, I think. Which I think is a little annoying for you guys to listen, but um, we're going to do it anyway, right? That's the whole point of this. If you don't like it, move on. Back to the book. These are the resourcefully realistic and are always the timely triumphant. They are a matter of fact about the market and sensible about their situation. They see things as they are and openly acknowledge how they're doing. You know, they're talking about, I'm, I bumped into a guy a year ago in a networking event before the market had cooled at all. I mean, it's the hottest it had ever been. Never easier to sell something as an agent. And he was bitching about how difficult it was to sell things as an agent. I kind of felt sad for him. Like I don't know if you were around last time, dude, but uh, yeah, you'd be living on the fucking streets, man, if you think this is bad. Uh, Back to the book. They see things as they are and openly acknowledge how they're doing, and at the same time, they stay optimistic about their opportunities. As my friend Zig Ziglar says, they do a checkup from the neck up and make sure that even though the market is reshaping itself, it isn't reshaping their attitude. You can't control the market, but you can control your outlook and your response to the market. Remain resolute. That's a great... Remain resolute, renegades. Know that while everyone won't succeed in a shift, some will and anyone can. You must be an anyone can. This is not just a short-term attitude you adopt, but a lifelong posture you take. It's a journey you embark on led by the mental choices you make. Be certain of this. Your mindset matters. Yes, it does. I've been on both sides of this where I couldn't even get off the couch for six months. I didn't even brush my teeth or shower to being a fucking go-getter man if you don't think mindset matters man it really does back to the book most people lead a flow with the tides life their careers and their fortunes seem to rise and fall with the tides of the market when things are going well anything and everything works their boats float what they fail to realize is that literally all boats float at high tide and no captain gets credit for that when times get tough and the tide goes out and all of a sudden not everything works their boats don't float Those quick to adjust will have a floating boat on the rocks or out to sea. The choice is yours. Be a low tider. always be prepared for low tide. Know that it is always a good time to be in the real estate market. When you take a long-term view of the market, instead of getting caught up in the short-term volatility, know that there is always enough business for you to survive with a minimum income while striving for your maximum. Keep your perspective, judge your success over the length of your career, not the high or low of any single year. Know that growth comes from clarity, priorities, and focused action. The first two are how you think, and the last is what you do. To make a strong mental shift, be clear about your situation, what it is you want. Write down and prioritize the necessary steps you must take to achieve your goals. Now you're focused on what you want, you know what you need to do, and you know what comes first. So what are you waiting for? the action shift. Once you've gotten real, you've got to get right, right into action and right and into the right action for all the necessity of knowing what to do. Taking the right action now was just as necessary. Once you know, then it's not about more knowing it's about doing the difference between a career worth having and a career worth heaving is the amount of focused action you take every day. It's about knowing what to do and then doing it. Keller Williams CEO, Mark Willis, often shares that his inspirational, energetic mother, uh, Rachel Willis, always taught him to do right, fear or not. When you do the right things, you leave fear behind. It's true. Leave it all on the table, right? It's also why I like to do my um, calls late into the evening. Even on a Friday night, dial right up to 738. Go into the weekend like a boss said it like a bitch back to the book. When you know what to do, when you know what to do, it's time to move from inspiration to perspiration. So the straightforward question that jumps right at you in a shift is a simple one. What do I do right now? Actually, this is a two part question at first ask what must be done, right? And then what must be done now? The answer is the two part question becomes your focus and yours alone. Understand what worked yesterday probably won't work today. And what matters now probably didn't then. When the market shifts, new strategies are required and new actions are critical. In a shifted market, there is little room for mistakes and that is a real challenge. The margin for error is very thin. While there was once latitude, there isn't. You must be focused on the right tasks and you must execute them well. Efficiency and effectiveness are essential contributors to your bottom line. One way to look at the necessary actions is by roles, yours and others. The challenge you might have is that you thought there were some roles you had delegated to others only to discover that you haven't done so successfully. The net result is that you must personally start doing certain tasks again. The critical actions that you identify must be carried out by you or personally overseen by you on a daily basis. Our research shows that the two actions real estate agents must take personal ownership of our lead generation and lead conversion. Nothing becomes more critical to success than finding motivated buyers and sellers and closing them with an appointment or to an appointment. Your active involvement in the lead conversion process gives you two invaluable gifts. First, you get an immediate and ongoing sense of the issues of the market, the buyer and seller objections that need to be overcome. Second, you will get an honest understanding of the conversion rates that are possible. No one on your team will be as talented or as invested in closing leads to appointments, and your direct participation allows you to set the standard and coach your team on how they too can meet it. It's what I call management by wandering around, but it's not really wandering. I want to periodically and regularly insert myself into critical areas of the business. Sam Walton made a habit of visiting all his stores and working cash registers for hours. His interaction with customers gave him vital insight to what was working and what wasn't. To put lead generation and lead conversion in less effective hands than yours could spell the difference between success and failure. Failure is never an option. As business analysts have often put it out, pointed out, the seeds of failure are usually sown during times of success. The most humbling lesson of a shift is this. We succeed in good times not only because of what we do right, but also in spite of what we do wrong. That's so true. In the good times, man, there's a lot of room for error, you know? The bad times, there's just not... Reminds me of the one thing. Anyway, back to the book. The remaining 11 tactics involve making some of the most important choices you'll ever make and mastering some of the most important skills you'll ever master. What you did right in the past will be re-evaluated, reevaluated and what you did wrong corrected. In each one, you will most likely have to ask, "What should be? who should be doing this, me or someone else? The way to resolve this is by asking one more question. Who will do this the best? Don't fight the answer. As you go through the list of necessary actions, don't be surprised if they're not special, unique, or new. Actually, they are the foundational components of any successful real estate career. Our research with the best agents in the industry for our book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, and our ongoing dialogues with them absolutely show that the top agents become top agents by mastering the fundamentals. Maybe the reason the basics are so often abandoned is the fact that they aren't special, unique, or new. When business gets tight, they reveal themselves as the timeless factors that determine the difference between success or failure. School is never out for the motivated. The basics are never outdated. I'm going to highlight that. School is never out for the motivated. Tactic number two, we're on page uh, 29 for those following. Remargin your business expense management. It is not necessary to change. Survival is not mandatory. W. Edwards Deming. Anyone who expects change to be comfortable hasn't been changed or challenged enough. Change isn't easy and significant change is downright difficult. Yet long-term success requires it. My experience has taught me that the most, uh, sorry, my experience has taught me that the people most responsive to change are the ones most likely to survive and thrive. James York, a University of Maryland mathematics and physics professor, put it perfectly when he said the most successful people are those who are good at plan B. In other words, when change affects your plan, plan effect of change. I like that. Your plan is only as good until it meets the market, right? Back to the book. To shift is to change. The market changes, therefore, you must change with it. With your thinking right and your role clear, you must immediately identify the other effective business changes your current circumstances require. The first one is the only one that you can get that can get you back to profitability the fastest cutting costs. The number one determinant of thriving is lead generation, but the number one determinant of surviving is expense management. So to thrive, you need to become great at close, generating and closing leads. To survive, you need to manage expenses. When markets shift, the first change a business must make is re-expense itself. Revenuing your way out of a shift is iffy at best. Generating more income may be impossible in the short run and take too much time in the long run. This approach is always just too little too late. Now is the required speed when a shift occurs. Get your expenses lower now, right? So I'm reading this book now, repairing early. I cannot overemphasize the importance of always working from a position of profitability. It is vital and must be protected at all times and at all costs. And therein lies the answer, time and costs. You must lower your costs now. To generate revenue you generate leads. To make a profit you manage expenses. Sam Walton explained his success this way. We had to keep our expenses to a minimum. That is where where it started. Our money was made by controlling expenses. This is true for all businesses. The profit you seek will always be made in the way you manage your money. So when a market shifts you must create a budget that matches your revenue. We call this remargining your business. Interestingly, One might think that the goal of profit would provide the motivation necessary to do this, but research and personal experience have proven otherwise. Fear of financial loss is a more powerful motivator than the opportunity for financial gain. It just seems that the push we get from our fears is stronger than any pull towards the profits we desire. A swift kick in the behind turns out to be a pretty good motivator and that's okay. Peter Drucker was famous for teaching this very straightforward point. You can't build a business on by cutting back but you can find your profit and save it. Every business must make a profit. To do this, they must find a profit margin they can achieve and focus on getting there. The only true competitive weapon you have as a business person is a margin of profit. It is the foundation from which all your competitiveness stems. If a market shifts because your income causes your income to drop, but your expenses don't immediately drop and lockstep with it, then your profit margin is gone. And along with it, your competitiveness If this lasts long enough, you'll go out of business because no profit and no competitiveness means business. Unless you're a fucking Marxist. Let's make the government do it. Back to the book. I know you guys like my anti-government, anti-Marxist rhetoric, right? This all seems like common sense. You cut to save and you spend to build. So what happens? Prosperity happens. In growing times, we tend to become profitable with positive cash flow and loose with financial decision-making. We review the bottom line, see a profit, trust all as well and fail to scrutinize the detail. The fact is that for all of its positive indicators, profit can also give a false reading. We allow an increase in our business profits to convince us that we're do- that what we're doing is working well, really well. Thus we mistakenly justify our increased expenses as the cost of doing business saying things like it takes money to make money and allow our rising revenue and present profit to cover up any mistakes or inefficiencies. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, and Warren Buffett Speaks said, name a business that has been ruined by downsizing. I can't name one. Name a company that has been ruined by a bloat. I can name dozens. That's a good point. In up markets, we tend to move fast and swell up. We're not as tight on our dollars or as tough on our results. We gain size and fail to see the bloat in it. We don't play red light, green light with our expenses very well. We tend to just play green light, green light. Go, go, go. In up markets, we tend to acquire habits and patterns of doing things that don't stop us in good times but grind us to all halt and bad. In other words, we do so much right that the market covers up the wrong. The first causes us to succeed and may be so powerful that it even powers us right past the second. Good times seem to reward all that we do, and profit seems to give permission to be permissive. Permission to avoid things you don't enjoy. Permission to do things you've always wanted to do. Permission to do the things in the spur of the moment. All of this leads to a lack of scrutiny, research, and accountability. Profit can act like a financial pillow and become a mental cushion or like a financial sofa inviting you to take a mental nap. And I so did this early on, 2006 and early 2007, right? Oh, the money's coming in, the market's fine. La-la-la-la. It's going to, what's the problem here? We're going to be all right. Boom. But the truth is that there's never a good time to nod off and violate the fundamentals of finance. Always think financially awake and alert. That is what long-term successful business people do. They ask what should be done. What will it generate? What will it cost? Will it be profitable? They look and listen and they pay attention to the answers. Business is never automatic or predictable. You can never predict with certainty the outcome of any action you take or financial decision you make. Each Decision presents opportunity and risk. So think of spending money in your business as investing in your business. When you invest, you expect to get your money back plus a return. And the same applies in your business. You're investing in your business every time you spend money. Therefore, sound business implores you to follow the basic philosophy, every dollar spent should return its original amount plus a reasonable profit. Think of this as a cost plus principle of converting your expenses Into business investments. I like that. I'm already getting showing. So one of my listings just got listed. Boom. Shaka luck. My seller's out on vacation. Maybe I'll have a contract for him by the time he gets back. Listen and sold it when you're on vacation. That sounds good. Go ahead and reach out to me. Jeremy at renegadedetroit.com and I'll hook your ass up back to the book. Everyone pursues growth but few truly realize how profit happens. They prove this every day by continuing to drive revenue while spending money there where they shouldn't. Good markets hide this. Tough markets expose it. If you don't pay attention to how profit is made and lost, you'll most likely create and maintain a profit margin on the way up that will immediately disappear on the way down, never to be found again. Most agents tend to think they are good as their last best year and so the average over their careers." And they set up their expectations and expenses accordingly. They tend to think the trend of their last couple of good years will continue and they underestimate the market's contribution to success. I think there's a long and short way of live well below your means and have money saved, right? Here's the dilemma. Do you spend based on your average, your last year, your best year, or your goals? The answer is none of the above. No matter the market, you always follow the philosophy of lead with revenue. This means Either always working from a position of profitability or, if just getting started, working from a position of having enough revenue already on the book so you know exactly when profitability will start. In a shifted market, you drop your expenses until your inflow once again exceeds your outflow at an acceptable level, and then you play red light, green light. You now grow your budget incrementally by holding each new expense accountable for contributing profit in line with your acceptable profit margin as you aim towards your goal. You're spending by leading with revenue and you're growing by the cost plus business investment approach. It's a nice, succinct way to put it, right? It's the true win-win financial formula that works for any business at any time in any market condition. Protect your margin. When a shift hits initially, everyone gets hit equally. The market doesn't discriminate. So all boats float lower. What happens first is equal and without choice. What happens next is unequal and determined by choice. There is no expense that is untouchable. There is no cut too small. You must reduce expenses to match your income plus an acceptable profit margin. Be brutal. Cut, cut, cut. Cut once, cut twice, and then keep cutting every week until you're there. Attack both variable and fixed expenses. Variable expenses might include hidden fees, or add-on fees you've been unaware of, overcharges from lack of attention, unnecessary work that should be postponed or canceled, waste that has gone unchecked, and ineffective expenditures that have been returning zero results. From copies to couriers, from office supplies to subscriptions, from snail mail to express mail, the waste is there. Find it. Root it out. Get rid of it now. Nothing should be untouchable, and all expenses should feel the heat of your scrutiny. I like how he writes this sometimes. Sometimes how he writes annoys me. And every once in a while, because I think it's a little Kung Pao simple. I guess he's trying to keep it simple, but I like the way that sounds. Back to the book. This same approach applies to fixed expenses. Fixed expenses are always agreements that usually fall into the categories of car payment, rent, leases, advertising, phones, or salaries. Here, you are best served by thinking of ways to turn fixed into variable. If you can get out of them, then get out. If you can extend them to lower the monthly cost, then extend them. If you can shift fixed costs to performance-based, then do it. You're in the hunt for a positive net number and not getting there isn't an option. Deal straight with people. Tell them the truth and tell them what has to happen. You might be surprised at some of the results you and your team engineer and may wonder why you never did this before. As I say, necessity is the cause of most invention and a powerful motivator. Rebudgeting is your first issue and if you don't get it right it just may be your last one too. Cut expenses first, find your margin fast. Get your money smart again. Your money was once smart. It was invested each day based on past successful results so it was predictably productive each time it was spent. It was smart money. When the market shifts your money instantly becomes dumb. What worked no longer works so what it was spent on doesn't yield the same results. It is dumb money. It is often said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. This couldn't be true regarding money than when a market shifts. Warren Buffett teaches the first step to financial recovery is to stop doing the wrong things. It's an old principle. You don't have to make it back the way you just lost it. To get the results you want, you'll have to pull back your expenses, find your margin of profit, figure out what works, and then put your money behind it. First you get smart then your money gets smart. For every dollar spent expect multiple returns from it. Just keep this principle at the heart of your business spending and you can't go wrong. Until you get this don't spend another dollar. First you get smart then your money gets smart. Yeah cuz when you're dumb you know what happens to your money it goes and sleeps at the fishes. Back to the book. This is how you build on success as opposed to piling failure on top of failure. Don't just try to spend your way out of a shift. Make your way out through results. Define a benchmark dollar result you should expect from every dollar you spend. And until you get the result, don't spend any more. This is the most important business discipline you'll ever need. Learn it. Live it. Once it is ingrained into your business thinking, you'll simply be adding success on top of success for the rest of your career. Your money will be smart. You'll be even smarter and financially better off. When you get your money smart again and are working from a positive profit margin, you are back in the game. The shift may have dropped you down, but you're not out. You know what you're spending money on. You know what you're getting for it. You are putting your money where your priorities are. You're in control of your money instead of your money controlling you, knowing what you spend, where it goes, and what you get for it alerts you to opportunities you might otherwise miss. You'll know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and whether you can afford anything else. You're in the best possible decision-making position. The key to re-margining and changing your budget is changing the way you think. If money matters, then managing that money matters. To be an effective money manager, you must be a budget bully. Challenge everything and make nothing sacred. The goal is to guide your business and manage your money, as Owen D. Young, the the former chairman of GE, said, by taking advantage of the maximum number of opportunities and making the minimum number of errors. When you lead from a position of profit, your world is full of possibilities. What are we at? One hour and 14 minutes? All right, we'll do... uh, how many more pages will we do? That's a good question. Yeah, we'll do a few more. All right. Tactic number three, do more with less leverage. When we are no longer able to change the situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Victor Frankl. When the market turns, it's time to roll up your sleeves and for everyone around you to do the same. It's time to work both smarter and harder. It's time to evaluate with resources and s- services. It's time to evaluate which resources and services must stay or go. It's time to consider effectiveness and efficiency as tools of necessity. It's time to see what bang you can get for the bucks you've got. Cutting expenses and finding your margin doesn't necessarily mean slashing quality or delivering less. It does, however, demand getting the job done with less money available to do it, and this will create a dynamic tension inside your business. Change and the speed of change always puts pressure on you to do things better and yet more cost-effectively. Even worse, a swift change can unexpectedly unexpectedly find you doing less and doing it less efficiently. It's in that moment you suddenly grasp the true challenge of the shift to do more with less. When the market shifts, your organization must shift too. A market shift can be an opportunity to evaluate, upgrade, and top grade your business an unsolicited gift of the shift. Instead of hiring just to get the work out, it may be time to reassess and top grade your people. Instead of just managing the flow, it may be time to retool and upgrade your systems. Skip any fault finding, finger pointing, or blaming and go straight to a new vision for your business. Back to basics. Don't let change throw you for a loop. Once you know what you must accomplish and you know what your margin can be, you must envision and promote a positive future. There's an old saying in sports, if you want to stay ahead, then play like you're behind. The challenge you might have is that you've been ahead and played like it. Now you're behind, so what do you do? You do what all great business people do. You focus tightly on the basics. You do that by asking yourself four straightforward questions. What are my business priorities? When do they need to get done? Who is the best person to do them? And finally, how should they be done? We know the answer to the first question is the fundamental six priorities for your business. And then we got, we got the six core competencies of a business. Number one, lead generate, capture, and convert to appointments. Number two, present to buyers and sellers and get agreements. Number three, show buyers and market sellers. Number four, write and negotiate contracts. Number five, coordinate the sale. To closing, number six, manage the money. We know that to achieve your highest potential, these six core competencies must be done consistently and done well. We also know the answer to the second question because these priorities show up for your business in this precise order and there's no skipping around. Your business success starts with generating leads and progresses from there. The real mission is to get all these done in order at the highest level possible with the least amount of resources. The management of these resources is what the last two questions are about. If you know what needs to be done and when it must be done, then you're left with who and how. People and systems. People. People begins with you. I love this. You ever work for those people when it was everybody else and not them? Very, very frustrating. So before you look at others, take an honest look at yourself. Yourself first, right? If we don't know ourselves, how can we ever truly know anybody else? Are you maximizing your own productivity? Are you doing what matters most? Are you doing what you get paid to do? As we said in tactic number one, get real and get right. The role you play in your business is critical now more than ever. Once you are clear about your personal efforts, uh, about how your personal efforts are getting more of the important things done cost-effectively, the focus shifts to others in your business. So it's so easy just to start looking at other people. I think I mentioned this earlier. Uh, I, I did it in the one thing, right? Talking about um, look at yourself first instead of blaming others. Same thing here. When a shift happens. Look at yourself first. Actually, it's a good rule. Before I go around, look at anybody else. Look at yourself. Back to the book. There are two types of people in your business, those directly employed employed by you and those indirectly employed by you. Those directly employed by you are the ones to whom you write checks. Those indirectly employed are the vendors who support you. Both groups need sorry, got a page cut here need to be effective because both are equally important to your success. Let's first look at those you directly employ. Good times can obscure and even camouflage who isn't really working out or even who actually working at all up markets can hide lesser talent because we predictably focus on our sales success in the moment and generally don't give the market enough credit for its role in our success. Face it. When it comes to people up markets, conceal and tough markets reveal where they say the hard times, uh, it's in the hard times that your character is revealed, right? Same thing here. So the hard times you really know who you have is valuable. Back to the book. The challenge in a shift is that in order to do more with less, you must make sure that the less can do more. Think about it for a moment, and you'll discover that you're facing the topic of talent. When you look at your organization through the filter of a shifting market, you realize that no matter the circumstances, you can only ever have one critical issue with people – You either have the right ones or the wrong ones. It's always about quality and never about quantity. You can never have too many of the right ones, but you can certainly have too many of the wrong ones. And no matter the market, too many rights never make up for even one wrong. In your business, talent is someone who is a great match for the job you need them to do, who is motivated to do it, and can do it really well. In the millionaire real estate agent, we identify those individuals as cul-de-sac talent. They have all the skills and motivation necessary to do the job you hire them for, and they can perform at a very high level. However, these individuals may still be cul-de-sac talent in that they don't have the skills or motivation to grow upon beyond their current position. Capacity talent, on the other hand, can do their job and much more. They will push for a role, for a larger role and more responsibility. Capacity talent is your greatest asset in a shift. They want to do more and can do more. They require less of your time and will accomplish more and less time. They may cost more, but will always make you more than they cost. Capacity talent, real talent, will see the shift as their opportunity to shine and they will stand out in your organization. Always keep in mind that you can't do more with lesser talent, but with real talent, you can always do more with less. Are The people that are working for you, Are they talented? Are they um, adding value? Before you visit with your people to do the math and make sure you know what your needs are. Also look at yourself, right? What needs to be accomplished and how much money do you have to pay for it? You're caught in between what you can afford and what you can't afford to lose. This is one of the most challenging leadership positions you will encounter. As you work through this, think assistance first and assistance. So assistance like help and assistance the person second. Think part-timers, subcontractors, vendors, affiliates, or students. Review your needs and all your options for meeting them. Remember, you have a lot. You can combine positions, cut hours, or move to results-focused bonus-based compensation. Any or all of these might need to be considered as you figure out how to keep talent with you. While keeping costs as low as possible, when you're done thinking this through, take stock and see where you are. For those already in your business, you need to find out who wants to to work and can. Your approach will be as simple as following seven-step process. What is a seven-step process? Seven steps to a talent shift. Number one, sit down with your people and share your vision for your business. Tell them the truth about the situation, where the business is today, and where you see it going. Number two, Visit with each person to see if they're with you and are willing to do what it takes. Number three, realign job descriptions around the six core competencies that must get done. You might even consider moving from job descriptions to task descriptions. In this way, your key tasks can be mixed and matched, cross-trained and swapped without changing titles or uh, compensation. Seek flexibility and avoid rigidity. Number four. Set easy-to-measure goals, standards, and activities for each person. Be positive and clearly communicate what needs to happen. Then expect results or resignations. You'll accept either. Number five, that's savage right there, right? Establish a simple training schedule to make sure everyone knows what to do, how to do it, and what is expected of them. Training not only builds competence, but also confidence and positive expectations. I like that. Hope you guys are highlighting too. Nature's listening to me. Right? You got the book? I link to the book. You can buy the book from a link in the description. Number six, meet weekly with each individual to reevaluate their success and reach agreement on any corrective action. Don't make the mistake of believing that once changes are made, everyone is on board. You must inspect what you expect. Touch base regularly to check in and see how they are doing. I think we're all guilty of that, right? We all do better when we're managed and held accountable. One of the funny human things. Number seven, celebrate the small victories as well as the big ones. Celebrate the individual wins as well as the team's successes. Keep it simple. Try to flatten your organization as much as possible. Less bureaucracy usually means more productivity. Create an environment of open communication and feedback. Remember that rulemaking isn't nearly as productive as working from goals, action plans, and standards. Be aware that top-down imposed change can create frustration, fear, anxiety, unrest, and even resistance. Talk to your people and share what you're doing through and ask them what they're going through. Do your best to eliminate uncertainty and you will eliminate a lot of insecurity too much change too quickly can be difficult so remember that most people that people most likely will need new information to help understand and buy into it and above all they'll need new and constant re-education people will rarely make the leap and a shift on their own They need to be led through change. If you do these shifts, the right people will see the strength of your commitment and rally behind you. For those who don't get it, they will have made it clear they can't play on your team. They will have it made clear they they can't play on your team. Nothing will help the wrong people at this point, but a new job somewhere else. One agent shared a telling story. She printed the letters DECK on four sheets of paper. And place them on the conference table in her office. It's time for all hands on deck. But not everyone on her team put hands on the table. Surprised and disappointed, she had to go back to her office and revalue her team on the spot. If you must fire peep, if you must fire people, follow a process. Once you've made the decision to part company, move quickly, but be respectful. You invited them into your business with positive anticipation for their future, and you have to invite them out with the same attitude. There is no place for good guys and bad guys. The time has passed for the blame game. It didn't work out. Nobody's happy about it. And it's time to move on. The key is to frame out a win-win that works for everyone. Once the employee is gone, there is no place for any further discussion about the circumstances. Just remember that loose lips sink ships and everyone associated with you will be paying attention. The respect you show those who are no longer with you builds respect with those who are. Talent scouting in four steps. Number one, check references. Number two, get a behavior profile. Number three, conduct an in depth interview. Number four, test for knowledge and skills. When you hire new people, when you need to hire new people, always, God, sorry guys, when you need to hire new people, always follow the simple four step process. So I'm talking about when people write and they throw in extra words all the time and I'm reading it, I get very impatient sometimes. I apologize for that. Check references and go deep. Ideally, you want to talk to people beyond the references your candidates provide and who are usually their unabashed advocates. Get a behavioral profile. Example of the DISC to determine whether or not their natural behavior matches the job. Conduct an in-depth interview in order to determine their strengths and weaknesses and if possible, give them a specific test to prove their knowledge and skills. The goal is to hire talent to your team. The hiring process is usually cheated on in good times and it's easy to understand why. When your business is growing, you need help fast and you tend to make the first you tend to take the first person who comes along. You need help and you need it now. This is the mud approach to hiring. Sling some people at a job and see who sticks. Circumstances have changed. You need talent now, and the more talented team members you have, the fewer you'll need. The same standard of having the right people applies to your vendors. Getting more and better support from your vendor team is critical. In fact, think preferred partner versus vendor. It'll make your thinking clearer. You need a phenomenal outside support team to work together with your inside support team to become one seamless high-performance unit. Make sure you have a loan officer who understands creative financing and is up-to-date on all available lending programs. A title officer who understands the closing process issues that arise during shifting times. Inspectors who get the fickleness of buyers when operating in a perceived buyer's market. Appraisers who know that transactions can hinge more than ever now on tight, proper appraisal and are willing to listen to a valuation challenge and respect your market research. Hold your preferred partners to the same high standards that you have for your team. Meet with them regularly. Set goals and review results with them. Okay. I think I need to do that. I'm uncertain how, but I'm sure they'll tell me, right? That's why I read in the book. When you treat your outside support team with the same expectations of excellence you insist upon from your inside support team, you will be amazed at the positive difference it makes for your business. With both your inside team and your outside team pulling together in the direction you set for them, you have the best chance of success. Systems. You top grade people and you upgrade systems. Now that you know what you need to do, when you need to do it, and who you are having do it, it's time to tackle your systems and how things are done. Good times usually plant seeds of system inefficiencies that during tough times sprout into choking weeds of ineffectiveness. Ooh, I like that. He, 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 he actually wrote in a flowery way that I enjoy. We tend to add staff rather than improve systems and end up putting pressure on our budget instead of your processes. The goal now is to quickly reevaluate how things are done to see what works and what doesn't. Again, we want to do more with less, and that means we have to make our approaches to things simpler. To do this, you must think efficient versus effective and make maximum use of everything and everybody. The key is to ask what exactly needs to be accomplished to hit your minimum goals of sales and service quality without any extra effort or expense. Put another way, how can we execute a task with less effort and expense and still maintain high effectiveness? This is the efficiency question you face. Usually with systems, the problem you face is the same exact one everyone faces. You're probably trying to do too many things and as a result, not doing enough of the right things the right way. Try to do too much. Well, trying to do too much will cost you time and money. Your procedures must be lean and mean. No more paperwork for paperwork's sake. No more filing for filing's sake. No more detail for detail's sake. Remember, complexity kills. Everything must be extremely purposeful. Everything must be streamlined. The goal is to get right what you need to get right with as few steps as possible doing it as possible. I'm sorry. The goal is to get right what you need to get right with as few steps and as few people doing it as possible. That means less red tape and fewer distractions. It means breaking things down to their basics to figure out what it is you you what it is the least you have to do right now so you can get the most done. Just boil things down to the basics that will get it done. Get rid of all else and start from there. Get down to the basics to what works at a truly simple level. In essence, if you're right sizing your boat and jet, you, in essence, you're right sizing your boat and jettisoning ballast. Simplify your business, lay a more focused and efficient foundation, find out what works and make the most of what you have. It's kind of like when um, jobs got kicked out of Apple and Apple went and started producing like 220 things. And then he came back and I think he cut it down like 15. He simplified the business, getting light on your feet. Change requires everyone to be on board. It's time for all hands on deck to change really means to adapt Respond, right? And get ahead if we can. So just think of you and everyone working with you as being part of an adaptive organization. An adaptive group always expects change, whether forced on them or caused by them. And change causes more change. The point is for you and your people to not view what you do as static so that the change appears to be this big deal that everyone fears, but see it as being adaptive and as a critical competitive advantage, an advantage you're always seeking. Change is good. It's good for the advantage it can give you. To grow, let go. Let go of the preconceptions of people and systems and what you think you should do. Start with what you have and build from there. Build core competencies around what really matters and associate with people who are on the same page as you. Now, more than ever, your personal actions, your people, and your systems must focus on the 20% that matters. There's no time or money in doing the 80%. Just let it go. And we're wrapping up on page 48. All right, let's go back and review. What would you guys highlight? Don't just read what I highlighted. Make sure you go back and um, if you highlighted different things, let's take this time, you know, pull out your book. and Let's go back and take a look and see what you highlighted. You know, this shit is just what spoke to me. It might not have anything to do with you or your business, you know. No challenge, no achievement, no success. So our challenges are our achievement and our success, right? There are opportunities. Our challenges are our opportunities. Success takes action. And sometimes those actions will be hard and sometimes they'll be easy, but none of it will happen laying on your couch. And I could say that because I laid on my couch. Get the fuck up. Move. Listen you're listening to this right now, get the fuck up and go for a 10-minute walk. If you lay on your couch, just go do it now. Pause this and come back. They get there by making decisions based on whether or not they want you to do something rather than whether or not they should do something. You see, John, the road to average is paved with I don't want to's. Nobody has a job that they love all the time or a business they love all the time. The point he's making here is um, I don't remember all the way on the left, which is a complete failure. And all the way on the right is a massive success. And most people end up in the middle. And the quickest way to end up in the middle is uh, I don't want to do the do the things you don't want to do. If they're required to get where you need to go. Success is doing what you must. Hey, just right on time, right? What you must do, not what you fucking want to do. You got to do what you got to do to get what you want when you want it. The formula for success doesn't get any clearer than that. There's no sense of bitching about it. The work is what the work is. Go do it. A shift becomes the air of opportunity for those who are willing to do what others won't. And this is the important part and why I'm doing this now. Regret is a stinky cologne, man. I got to tell you, I thought I was taking advantage of that market, that last crash. And I worked, you know. I worked a shit ton of hours, but my systems weren't that good. My mind wasn't that good. My partners weren't that good. There's just so much I could have done better. My mind wasn't as right as it could have been. Man, how many of those crashes are we going to get in our life? Just in comparison to how competitive the market is now, we really need to take advantage of those times. I mean, just look at all the people that are built. AT&T built during bad times. So many companies built during bad times. Bad times are opportunities to increase market share. So let's get real. You must drop the bad habits of a good market and adopt the good habits of a bad market. I think that speaks for itself. The problem with the good market is it hides a lot of expenses. Alan just flips this approach around by spending up to four hours aggressively marketing an open house. And then when he holds it open, it's packed and can last less than an hour. That was more for me since I have some clients who insist I do open houses. We've observed that when top agents delegate lead generation and appointment setting, their conversion rate usually falls from upward of 80% to much less than 10%. So lead gen efforts, probably one of the last things you should outsource, right? Or, and or spend a lot of time training the people. That's why I spend so much time with the people dialing. That's why I make them cold call, right? Right. Everybody bitches about it, and it's just like working out. I can generally tell who's going to make it and who doesn't by bitching about the work they need to do. The poorest performing agents want to get paid a lot to play a lot before they've earned the right by working a lot. I think this applies to investors or anybody's job. It's faulty thinking that when played out, never pays out. How this works is you work really hard first. Then you make a lot of money. Then you play a lot. All right, that order. The secret of successful hiring is to let your support needs grow based on one result, having too many leads to handle. Um, Also, I would say that something that's um, Mike and Mike from Return on Investments um, gave me, Mike Simmons and Mike Cowpers, break it, then fix it. One of the great ways to break your business is get too many leads, then go back and fix it, right? When you aim past obstacles, they may slow you down, but you'll still have breakthroughs. And this one, I think, is a little bit of a play on words, but I like what he's saying here, right? So make sure your goals are bigger than what – significantly bigger than what is necessary, what you think you are accomplish. That kind of momentum will give you well, – that that kind of goal will give you the momentum to break through some of these walls. Like, you know, he's a little play on words here, he's doing some metaphors, but I think the point is made. I tend not to like plays on word, but eh, we'll let this go. Progress is made in the small intentional steps and chances are you have more power than you think. This goes back to the one thing we're talking about. Nobody knows uh, what the upper level of their achievement is. So let's not worry about it. Right? We'll find it. If we're diligent, work our ass off. What's happening to you today has happened before and it's destined to happen again. Real estate markets shift. They always have and always will, and the business goes on. Always happens. Markets go up, markets go down. Economies go up, economies go down. Doesn't often have much to do with you, if at all. The three types of real estate markets. Number one, buyer's market, more than seven months of inventory. Number two, balance market, from five to seven months of inventory. Number three, Sellers market less than five months of inventory. I remember when we had um, two years of inventory at one. There was like two or three years of inventory in Detroit in two thousand eight or two thousand nine. It ended up not being, but it, it was. It was a lot. It was a lot, and it was great. Something like that, old man. You should have seen back in the day, buddy. But the point is, get ready for the future. When shifts occur, fear runs rampant. Although not everyone responds in the same way. I can't even tell you the fear. If you didn't live it and you didn't experience it, people thought the world was ending. They literally did. And they acted like it too. In 2008, a lot of opportunity when people act like that, they make stupid decisions. You know, people are attracted to the industry by the perceived income opportunities and driven out by the reality of the competition for it. Like all things, Marxists don't understand is that uh, profits motivate. And the bigger the margin, the more people are going to attract. until so there's a shit ton of competition for that margin. And that margin will shrink. Competition, not forcing people to do things. So good markets bring in people and bad markets drive them out, right? Here's the truth. Not everyone will, but anyone will can and that's a mental attitude we need to adopt right not everyone will but anyone can anyone could do the right things at least in this business but if you've taken three steps forward and the market only drives you two steps back you're just absorbing the hit you're still in the game and you're more than just surviving do you got money in the bank do you got plans right if you have variable interest rates or you got to do refinancing your commercial stuff you you have a plan Can you handle a hit? If you can shift gears, shifting both your thinking and your tactics, you, accelerate, you will accelerate ahead of the rest. So change your mind and change what you're doing. Change both. First, we make choices. Then our choices make us. Like when you eat that cheesecake... And you wake up the next morning and pants don't fit i mean it's not that heaven but you know what i'm saying that's what they're saying there you must keep both eyes on your target and not the ever moving market the market's always moving your tactics are how you you interact with the market you got to keep your eye on the ball though right whatever your goal is is your goal and your tactics are how you achieve the goal in the market there are three types of people who emerge when a market shifts. First, those that fearfully predict the worst and are unnecessarily pessimistic. You know all those people, right? The end is coming. Hark now, Angel Gabriel. Second, those who hopefully wish for the best, believe they can't fail, and are unrealistically positive. I used to be this person. God, I fucking hate these people now too. Hey, it's all gonna be you know, it's just better work, you know. You gotta put in the end. whatever. And third, who I'm desperately trying to be. Those who respect the fact that they might fail, actively prepare for the worst and strive for the best. You can't control the market, but you can control your outlook and your response to the market. Remain resolute. These things happen. It has nothing to do with your business. Markets go up. Markets go down. Keep your eye on the goal. Keep your tactics on the market. Keep a steady hand. Be certain of this. Your mindset matters. It absolutely does matter. When you have a loser mindset, you end up doing loser things, right? What do I consider a loser mindset? You're perpetually a victim. You're the victim of every possible wrong, every slight, even things that have nothing to do with you, like the market crashing happened to you. You know what I'm talking about, right? Shut the fuck up. No, it didn't. Your mindset matters, right? Go back to that... um, what is it? We should put that quote with, first we make choices, then our choices make us. <laughs> put those two together. Know that growth comes from clarity, priorities, and focused action. When you do the right things, you leave fear behind. Yeah, if you don't want to worry, just do the things you're supposed to do the way you're supposed to do them. And over time, you will win. Our research shows, that the two actions real estate agents must take personal ownership of are lead generation and lead conversion. He's pretty much figured out that everything else could be outsourced and you want to spend a lot of time on talent in that spot, right? So it should be the last thing you delegate out. The most humbling lesson of a shift is this. We succeed in good times not only because of what we do right, but also in spite of what we do wrong. And that was one of the things I really had to get my mind around, right? Like I really thought during that 2005, 2006, 2007, you know, the tail end of that buildup that I was some fucking genius in business and real estate when really I was just riding an up market, right? On the flip side, when it crashed because I didn't have a good business plan and everything else like that, I took this like personally, like I caused the crash when really the market was crashing, right? It had a lot less to do with me than anything else. And I didn't react well and I didn't respond very fast, right? School is never out for the motivated. Always be learning. You already listen to this podcast, you fucking savages, so I know you're down for that. In other words, when change affects your plan, plan effective change. You know, your plan's only as good until it where it meets the where the metal meets the meat, right? Your plan meets the market. You're gonna have to change it. It's not gonna stay that way. People have a hard time changing plans. I mean, you should be slow to change it. But if it's not working, change it. The number one determinant of thriving is lead generation. But the number one determinant of surviving is expense management. A lot of people want to outspend their way out of problems. That's how you want to grow. You can't. uh, And that needs to be in a thriving market, right? Name a business that has been ruined by downsizing. I can't name one. Name a company that has been ruined by bloat. I can name dozens. He's talking about our tendency during the good times to just stack up expenses, right? Yeah, what's thirty dollars a month? Uh, I'll do that. Well, I'll I'll get that ad in that uh, that magazine. I feel good about it. You know, profit can act like a financial pillow and become a mental cushion, or like a financial sofa, inviting you to take a mental nap. So profit can make you careless, right? So stay vigilant. Therefore, sound business implores you to follow the basic philosophy. Every dollar spent should return its original amount plus a reasonable profit. Think of this as the cost plus principle of converting your expenses into business investments. I think that speaks for itself. You're spending by leading with revenue and you're growing by the cost plus business investment approach. And it was just making a point where to grow, you do have to spend, but you need to be accountable, right? We're just not throwing money at the problem. Nothing should be untouchable and all expenses should feel the heat of your scrutiny. This is really personal, but when we we're going through this shit the first time, so many arguments about what to cut and what not to cut. Ultimately, we did not cut enough fast enough and it ended up hurting us way faster. It's one of those things where if you don't do it, it's going to be worse. Like gangrene, you know, like financial gangrene. If you don't cut your expenses when you really need to, they're just going to be cut. You're going to be fucking out of money at the worst time possible with no resources to move forward. That's personally what happened to us in 2007. So do what you need to do. It's it's a nasty job to cut that gangrene off. But if you want the rest of it to make it pretty, it's just be your foot or it could be your your leg, or it could be your life, right? You choose. First you get smart, then your money gets smart. This is why so many people are stupid with money. They're stupid. I can say that because I was stupid with money. And I'll say it anyway. People begins with you. So before you look at others, take an honest look at yourself. And this is why I've only really had two bosses that I really, truly, and utterly respect. This is why. It's a very challenging thing, right? When they're always looking at others, they can never seem to point that light on themselves. Face it. When it comes to people, up markets conceal and tough markets reveal. You need to see where the, it's like uh, we said in the military where the metal meets the meat, right? When the bullets are flying. You know, you're all fucking GI Joe and gung ho and all that. Let's see when the bombs are dropping, you know, let's get on the phones and see what happens. Always keep in mind that you can't do more with lesser talent, but with real talent, you can always do more with less. I highlighted that, of course, which is why I'm reading it. Training not only builds competence, but also confidence and positive expectations. This is something I got to work on more. We do a fair amount of role playing and everything else like that, but um, practice—you know—this perfect practice makes perfect, right? Don't make the mistake of believing that once changes are made, everyone is on board. You must inspect what you expect. Touch base regularly to check in and see how they're really doing. Accountability. If people know you aren't checking, they're not going to fucking do it. This seems obvious, but I guess not to everyone. This even works on me. I know it seems stupid, but even though when I know it, because I know you guys are expecting these podcasts, I know you are. I I do it. So when I fell behind, I felt obligated to catch up. When I got sick, I felt bad about you know. If nobody was listening to it, it's really easy you know. Hey, and people ask me about it. You know, Joe asked me about the number of appointments I I made, how many call you know, all those sorts of things. You know, accountability matters, man. If you're not accountable, to anybody, I would find an accountability partner. Celebrate the small victories as well as the big ones. Celebrate the individual wins as well as the team's successes. I think that goes without saying do your best to eliminate uncertainty and you will eliminate a lot of insecurity. And I've known this on the, um, the sell side a lot. I sold a couple hundred Detroit properties in the worst time ever, mostly through cold calling. And then, um, the second half through my blog and warm leads. And I always knew it was during the worst time ever in Detroit, the worst market ever, the lowest prices ever, blah, 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 biggest market crash ever. I got really comfortable, um, I would do what's called inoculation. i just get ahead of the problems and i do everything I could, even if the answer was bad. Because you tell the truth, right? You don't want to lie. But even if the answer was bad, if you just tell them and you get them the information, you get them the research, and they know, knowing things will kill deals, but not as many deals as not knowing. Well, I don't know. How much does a roof cost? I don't know. Guess what? Deal's not happening. Oh, four grand. It might kill the deal. But hey, four grand. Okay, I got that in my budget. Let's do it. So that's what he's talking about here, right? Shine the light on everything. Hold your preferred partners to the same high standards that you have for your team. Title companies. I got to get serious with title companies. Meet with them regularly. Set goals and review results with them. I've got to get good on title companies, man. Good times usually plant seeds of system inefficiencies that during tough times sprout into choking weeds of ineffectiveness, right? This goes back to the things we were talking about earlier. And specifically, he's talking about especially when you had personnel instead of improving systems because one's easier to do than the other. And good times especially when you just need somebody to do it. Eh, during bad times, it's going to become pretty apparent. And these weeds can choke out all the things you actually need, Right. Spending all this money on shit you don't need and you can't actually do the things you need to do. Boom, you're dead. The goal is to get right what you need to get right with as few steps and as few people doing it as possible. That's efficiency. To change really means to adapt and we're doing it constantly. And I think that's it. I'm just taking a look here. Yep, we're done. So we finished on page 48. So next week, we're going to be on page 49, which is tactic four. Find the motivated lead generation. I'm looking forward to that. So let's mark this page. Yep. All right. Just making sure. Let's mark this page. All right. So that's it for this week, folks. Um, If you enjoy this podcast, hook a brother up, man. One of the small things you can do, which doesn't take very much of your time, is you can rate and review on iTunes. It really does help out. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to everybody who already has. It's awesome. Also, a ton of you are sharing this podcast, which is also awesome. But if you haven't already, just hit share. If you do it from the Facebook fan page or if you tag me on whatever social media you're using it for, um, I would appreciate it just so I can say thank you. For those I don't see and I don't catch, I apologize. I really do appreciate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to RenegadeDetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess or go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know I do this every week, but do you not just, just look around the economy of the government or I just see things differently? I don't know. I don't get the feeling Like they have our best interests at heart. I'm just saying. I know they are distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits, family sucks, whatever. Pick a goal. Stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day to get you closer, even if it's just one step. I want to thank you for listening, and I really do appreciate your attention. I know you can be doing lots of other things right now, so thank you. And until the next podcast, crush it.